you know we're talking about the problem of evil and suffering, and we got we did some groundwork. I told you we were trying to summarize last week uh, an entire semester's worth of work. I used to teach a semester of this uh, at another flagship Pentecostal institution, Lee University on the Church of God side. And so uh, this is a, a, a bare-bones basic tour we're walking through uh, here. We said also you weren't going to leave satisfied because we don't solve it. But I'm also um, really keen on us having questions for discussion when this comes up. You know, w we believe that uh, the, the tactics approach to evangelism, the conversational approach, really good. That means asking questions like the great rabbi Jesus, our Lord and Savior, did. So uh, he led with questions, far more questions than just bald statements. Um, he did this so that, you know, people would open up within their own assumptions. Um, uh, people end up embedding and believing things a lot more readily when they come to their own conclusion about something rather than being told you must believe it. Um, this is a, a, a big, big deal. So some of the questions from last week that would help in a conversation is one, you know, did you know that in our Sunday school class, we, we were trying to defend the claim that there's no better religion or world philosophy when it comes to dealing with suffering and evil than Christianity. Now that's a big claim, but we tried to sustain that. Or did you know that the most thorny expressions of the problem of evil have largely been eliminated, at least at an academic level? Did you know that? Even, not, even act scholars that aren't believers would admit this sort of thing. Um, did you know there's three different types of the problem of evil, right? There's the uh, intellectual or philosophical or logical problem of evil, the traditional formulation, the evidential, which is a, basically another formulation because the logical problem of evil is no longer considered a, a major issue in, the, in philosophy circles, also has been answered the evidential problem of evil, which has to do with amount and intensity. There's the emotional or pastoral problem of evil. I don't like a God that wouldn't answer my prayers immediately and do what I do what I need right now. And since we don't know details, this is probably the most difficult. So we're going to uh, start with where we left off last week and talking about how they've answered the second version of the problem, how there's the basic answer to the second issue of the problem of evil and suffering. And I'm also going to ask, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and get in your head. I'm going to ask some people to read scriptures out loud and we'll run a mic to you. There's only four today. Um, I wish there were more, but that's, that's what we're going to get to today when it comes to reasons for suffering in the word of God. But we're looking at the evidential problem of evil. And just to remind you, this is the second formulation. There are also non-believing uh, philosophers and logicians that say this has largely been answered as well. It's no longer considered a major issue. We also talked about how the problem of evil and suffering does not destroy the idea of God in general. It doesn't destroy theism, the idea of a God, but the idea of a loving, good God. In other words, uh, it doesn't ever get you to atheism. Even if the problem of evil goes through, it doesn't get you to atheism. It gets you to a type of theism that's a little uncomfortable and unbiblical, but it doesn't get you uh, all the way to atheism. So we wanted to go over four responses to the evidential problem of evil and suffering. But before I do that, just one quick reminder, too, and you can comment on this, too, Wave. Just so you know his background, Wave's got uh, a graduate degree, an, an MA in, uh, I believe, I Hebrew backgrounds from Jerusalem University, is that correct? Yeah, second MA at, from Reformed Theological Seminary of all, can you believe it? Yeah, Pentecostal went there. Uh, did they treat you like a bug under glass there? Like, pray in tongues for us, or how, how was it there? About 40% of the campus, both professors and students, at some point came up to me, and it was like, it was like they were wanting me to function as a father confessor, uh, and they would say, I just want you to know I speak in tongues. It was a going, secret thing. Okay, I'm not sure what to do with that or, you know, um, exactly how close we should be standing or whatever. But fine, that's God bless you Hallelujah. and uh, go and be warmed and fed or something. 
even know what to do with it. It's incredible. And a PhD in Hebrew cognate studies from Hebrew Union, if you're wondering about his background. So we, it's, it's such a treat to have him and have him here. It's, it's just awesome. So four things really, uh, what, what am I saying? It won't be quickly. We're both up here. But four things in dealing with, remember, the evidential problem of evil. The evidential problem of evil says this. It's not, it's not, a log, it's not logically incompatible that God and evil would coexist. We're going to grant that. But we're saying this, it's probable God doesn't exist given the amount of evil in the world, there's too much of it, and the intensity, it's too intense, problem of evil and suffering. Uh, so the way this has been traditionally answered by Christian and even agnostic uh, scholars and philosophers has been one that we're not in a position mentally, cognitively, to be able to say that there's too much or too intense evil. It may feel that way, but we're in no position to say how much evil is too much or how intense, the evil's too intense at this point to be worth free will, or to be worth even God's reason, right? We're also not in a position cognitively to know God's reasons. You know, one of the issues with the evidential problem of evil is that they call it uh, moral horrors, or gratuitous suffering and evil. Gratuitous means it doesn't, I can't think of a reason for God to allow this type of suffering. It seems so intense, it doesn't have an offsetting, balancing good that I can see. Well, just because you can't see a reason for the suffering doesn't mean there isn't one. That's a classic mistake people make all the time, but just because there isn't one that's available to you cognitively that you can figure out doesn't mean that there isn't actually a reason for the suffering. Uh, in other words, you're going to have to do a lot more work than say this, this suffering is pointless than to just say it. It's going to be a lot harder to show that there's no counterbalancing good or eventual good for this particular evil and suffering you're going through. Uh, the third thing... Um, uh, or the, the second thing to, or the third thing to remember with regard to this, that given the full scope of evidences for God's existence, you think of the design arguments, you think of arguments from beginnings, you think of the moral argument, arguments from maths and beauty. Uh, there's a ton of arguments in favor of God's existence um, that need to be weighed off against even a, a difficult emotional problem of evil or the evidential problem of evil. If you think about it, it really is that when it comes down to it. Most of the time when you encounter a skeptic, they usually use this line, there's not enough evidence for theism. That's not really an argument. That's saying I personally feel like I don't have enough evidence to get there, which is technically an agnostic claim. But the only way they offer a positive argument against our God conception, that means instead of saying there's not enough evidence, they say, well, here's an argument against you, is the problem of evil and suffering. Um, so given the fact that that's balanced off, there are a ton of evidences for God's existence, evidences for the Christian faith, for Jesus being who he said he was, being Lord and Savior and resurrected from the dead. Those are to be balanced off against this singular issue, which has an emotional component for sure. But that's another way they say, well, you know, when you're working with probabilities, you have to balance off, you know, one side versus the other. Uh, another issue that maybe, I hope it's not getting a little too technical, but it's this. If, since this is a probability argument or an inductive argument, it's not necessarily a deductive one. It deals in probabilities. It is interesting to me that when an atheist talks about problem of evil, they're like, look at the intensity of suffering. Look at the, intense, the, the amount of suffering in the world. There probably isn't a God. So it's almost like a statistical type probability thing. But then when it comes to the design argument, they ignore massive, massive improbabilities. So when you look at, say, the, uh, the design, what looks like it screams design of a cell or a human body or an artifact in our world or in the universe, 
they ignore those probabilities. There's a, such a massive improbability that this would come together on its own. So in the design argument, the skeptic can ignore probabilities, but then when it comes to problem of evil, they want you to stick to, doesn't it look like the intensity of evil means there probably isn't a god? It doesn't mean there ne necessarily isn't a god, but it probably isn't a case. So they get to ignore probabilities when it goes against their case. They want us to sit, you know, sit on it and struggle with the probabilities when it goes against our case. Any comment on that, Wave? I guess I would make um, a comment in light of the Bible's statements over and over that things as we wind down human history are going to get worse, yes. not better. Yes. So you have to dismiss the possibility that the God who has already predicted that, well, he knew it before it happened, so he must be in control of it, awesome. right? Awesome. Um, and... Uh, and nobody wants to hear that bad news. Yeah. In fact, we want to hear all of this, you know, before the end comes, there was, will be this great end time sweeping revival that will usher millions and millions of people into the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is going to be perfected on earth and it's just going to be blowing and going. And then God will look down from heaven and go, well, I guess they cleaned up that mess. Now I can come. It's called kingdom now theology uh, or God is restrained in the heavenlies until and then you fill in the blank. Um, but the reality of it is that, you know, the, 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 the prophetic word in the, in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible uh, is knowing the end from the beginning. That's what Isaiah says about God. He knows the end from the beginning. That means he's Lord over all of it. Both the bad part of this end time decline into greater and greater weirdness, um, as, as well as the time when Jesus comes back, the time that the saints are perfected, the time when there's a new heaven and a new earth, the time when there is an, a, a positive eternity in his presence that just is greater than anything we ever experienced here. So there is all kinds of good and incredible stuff uh, coming, but God's Lord over all of that, both the, the bad and what we would call good. Here's another thing that I would throw in, is that there's a lot of stuff that we as human beings, in our limited experience, limited lifespan and all of that stuff, limited knowledge base, that we have categorized into things that are good and things that are negative, positive and negative. I have been convinced in just looking at the little piece of little sliver of human history that I've lived and then in looking at things kind of historically all the way back into, into Bible times that that's not necessarily the divine perspective. We have this perspective and we categorize, we pigeonhole things. Well, that's good. Well, that's bad. That's positive. That's negative. And I'm not exactly sure that God looks upon things like that. For example, if you got drowned in Noah's flood, you would categorize that as bad. God would categorize that probably as neither, but as this is part of my will. This is the way that I accomplish my purposes in the earth. I don't have the same categories. I don't look at things exactly the way that you do. I'm, I'm not limited in the scope of my knowledge. I'm not limited in terms of my you know, experience with the, 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 the human race. And um, I have the big picture in mind. And um, that, that I just have a feeling that a lot of our problem with this business, the problem of evil, has to is perspectival.
um, and it is we have a human we're looking at it totally from our limited human experience god is looking at it from his entirely eternal and omniscient experience and we don't even look at the same realities and, and events this the same way so picking up where we left off from last week <clears throat> is really important uh we wanted to remind you that again this is uh going to resist a full uh, explanation on this side of eternity but nonetheless, we are attempting to sustain multiple claims in our shortened or abbreviated class sessions on this. As I've told you before, this was a full-on four-month uh, uh, college course and a high school academy course that we're attempting to try to pare down into two 40-minute uh, thereabout sessions for Sunday school class, growth class. So... Um, we want to remind you that there, you know, the logical problem of evil has been largely answered, as admitted by most uh, even skeptics. The second one, the inductive or probabilistic, or what's called the evidential problem of evil, has also uh, been answered substantially, as admitted by skeptics and non-skeptics alike in the in the areas of logic and philosophy, specialist in those areas. Um, but some of the reasons or ways to summarize the answer to the evidential problem of evil, again, this, uh, this is a, a summarization, is first and foremost, we're just not in a position uh, epistemologically to really say what would be too much evil or what would be too intense of evil uh, for a non, you know, for, to, to make it impossible that there be a counterbalancing good. In other words, the idea that you'd be able to assess and identify what we would call uh, or philosophers call a moral horror or gratuitous evil um, is we're just not in an, in a position uh, to make that assessment to either know how much is worth the good of having consequential choice or meaningful choice and volition in the world um, and the fact that uh, that we just don't know uh, what the counterbalancing good would be. The second is, relative to the full scope of evidence, um, even this version of the problem of evil, God's existence is still more probable than not. So even the evidential problem of evil, again, doesn't get God off the table as an entity. It doesn't eliminate theism as an option. It's just not built, designed to do that. But it, what it would do is make someone question the character of God as presented in the Bible. Um, three, we want to make sure we understand that Christianity entails doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and suffering, even with this evidential version, which uh, says it's not a logical contradiction for God and evil to coexist. You know, all you need is one bridging idea in order to make that uh, happen and defeat the logical version of the problem of evil. Uh, but in the evidential, which is much more difficult because it's inductive and probabilistic, uh, <clears throat> It says that uh, that this is one of those things where maybe it's more likely God doesn't exist because, again, the intensity and the amount of evil in the world and what looks like there isn't a counterbalancing good, at least in this life. But the doctrines that Christianity entails biblically would also increase the probability. Um, so these two answers are related, and they're not directly related to the evidential problem of evil. But one, there's a lot of good reasons to believe uh, God exists. The only argument that attempts to present evidence against his existence is really the problem of evil and suffering. Uh, there are other issues, but they have to do with uh, a lack of evidence or an, a perceived uh, missing component or pieces that would uh, apparently you know, complete 
the the idea or the uh, the verification or validity in someone's mind of God. But you have all these evidences for uh, an, an invisible, higher power, supernatural being. Then you have the problem of evil, and it's it's a ubiquitous thing. So it's a big thing, but it's it's it hardly uh, deals with or gets off the table the the other ideas that make God's existence more probable than not even minus a, a, a body uh, for the majority of, of human existence, a spirit being like God. But what are some of the doctrines in Christianity that would help us you know, bridge the gap between really, really intense, horrible evils and the idea of a, of a loving, benevolent, higher power? Well, one is that God is not uh, ultimately concerned with our happiness, satisfaction, and, and uh deep satisfaction. It's, it's a concern of his, but really knowledge of God is more important in his kingdom being established than our personal individual happinesses uh, on a person-by-person on a -person basis or even our collective happiness. So uh, this is one of the things you see in the Westminster uh, Catechism, um, that knowledge of God and enjoyment and of his presence is, is an incommensurable, incommensurable good. So a, measure, a, a type of good that can't be compared it's so high so um, what's another doctrine uh, the doctrine that we are fallen and sinful the vast majority of human suffering is volitional or will-based suffering um, you know caused by humans generated uh, by humans uh, the the doctrine of the fall of humankind makes um, again this uh, idea of there being a, a, a malevolent spiritual entity called Satan and his minions uh, as well as our, our crooked uh, nature towards pathological self-centeredness is a doctrine that, again, um, would condition uh, this sort of thing. And then another biblical doctrine would be the, the idea the Bible's very realistic about the foibles, the fallenness, and the suffering that comes along with people that pursue significantly the kingdom of God in this world. Um, the last is something that just needs to be said if, if someone has a longer discussion with either, either with someone who's you know, proposing the logical problem of evil or the evidential problem of evil, and that's a massive inconsistency with heeding probabilities. So at its more basic form, the evidential, the second version of the problem of evil that's been a pivot point since the logical problem of evil's failed. The logical problem of evil is God and evil cannot coexist. One has to go, and we know evil in some way affects all of us in suffering, so God's got to go. Well, if you have one idea or one reality that can bridge the gap between God and evil in the world, uh, in the universe, then that's over. So that one's been defeated. The evidential is a little more difficult because it's probabilistic. It's an inductive type. Um, but if we're told we have to heed the probabilities, it does look like it's. if I can't think of an idea of why there's so much evil or so intense of evil, couldn't we get by with less evil, less uh, less quantity of evil and less quality of evil and suffering in the world, um, then you have to heed the probabilities. Isn't it more probable than not, if you can't think of a reason, that there isn't a reason, that God's either a bad God or that, you know, that the problem of evil defeats uh, some version, you know, biblical version of theism. So we're told we have to heed the probabilities. If it's likely you can't think of a reason for a counterbalancing good, for the intensity and amount of evil in the world, then there must not be one. Um, it is interesting that the skeptic can ignore probabilities when the shoe's on the other foot. So when we present, say, the massive improbability of a of a functional cell, the most basic form of living thing forming on its own, and the library of information contained within that cell that needs the cell to house it and and replicate it, um, they just ignore those improbabilities. The massive improbability of you getting an environment that where life or even matter 
could 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 be sustained uh, and or flourish is also something that is routinely ignored by skeptics. These uh, arguments that there's massive, massive improbability that there would be something like self-assembly or this kind of uh, what looks like uh, design probably went another way and was authored in some way by a chaotic, directionless, purposeless cause or uh, uh, issue. So we wanted to bring bring those things to you and and, and just remind you of this sort of thing. But what are some reasons, if you can't, you know, it's hard to sometimes think of a counterbalancing reason for evil. What, what are some reasons God might allow evil? Um, we can see some things in the word that are pretty easy to, 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 to grasp, um, not when they happen to us, but just as, at a conceptual level. God uses suffering to shape our character. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had <clears throat> to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come... So that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God uses suffering to punish the wicked. This is something, again, found intolerable by our modern society. But God uses suffering to punish the wicked. You can see this just, again, like Genesis 6-6. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. Um, uh, Again, that punishment was coming for uh, the utter godlessness and unrighteousness and wickedness that was happening at the time. God also uses suffering as an opportunity to display his glory and redemption. Look at uh, John 9, 3, when the disciples come to Jesus and ask him, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he's having to deal with this um, this malady, uh, this issue uh, with the blind man. And Jesus says in John 9, 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, again, a, a jarring and difficult passage, but nonetheless showing God's purposes and allowing uh, uh, temptations, trials, and even suffering to happen uh, to those that call him Lord and Savior. So again, remember, sometimes God has a purpose for suffering that's not evident at the time, but revealed at a later point. Um, for example, but maybe the paradigm example is Joseph didn't know why God allowed him to be sold into slavery. But it was revealed later that God intended to rescue Jacob's family from famine. Listen to Genesis 50:20 as you close down the, the, the opening book of the Bible. Joseph's telling his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You can see God working through suffering at multiple levels in the life of Joseph. And I think this is a great place to plug uh, an, unexpected, an unexpectedly brilliant source of uh, biblical analysis and application has come from the uh, probably the most not probably the most credentialed three PhD doctorate holding apologist Oxford mathematician John Lennox getting up in years we've been trying to get him down here at the church for a while uh, but his book on Daniel called uh, Against the Flow was one that actually sold Dan Betzer who loves the book of Daniel has taught on it at least half a dozen times in his life. Um, Against the Flow is incredible on the book of Daniel, done by John Lennox. Again, an unexpected Oxford mathematician that loves Jesus and loves the Bible. His latest book that's like the Daniel analysis and application is, is called just called entitled Joseph. So I would suggest you pick it up. I haven't worked all the way through it like I've almost been through twice, the Daniel, his Daniel monograph, uh, Against the Flow. But this would be well worth your time. Uh, so... As we move on here, we wanted to say also that it's important if your discussion goes far enough that in, and you have enough relational currency with someone that you can say, 
well, who really has the problem of evil here? Um, if everyone has to answer about what they think evil is, then uh, what what happens then with somebody who's of a naturalistic bent? The naturalistic bent is somebody who says only you know, time plus space plus matter produced everything, and the only thing that's really real that's that's that has what we would call ontological weight, or that would be called real, is that which we can pick up with our five senses. Well, I mean, good and evil don't have the qualities a naturalist says are real. So what exactly are you talking about? Do you have within your worldview toolbox, whether it's Buddhism, Mormonism, uh, Hinduism, Confucianism, Baha'ism, uh, atheism, agnosticism, uh, scientific materialism, do you have the tools in your toolbox to talk meaningfully about morality and ethics? Um, and I think there's a great place to mention uh, this as well. In other words, I can talk about the problem of evil and suffering because I have the tools in my worldview or religious toolbox to talk meaningfully about these subjects. Take C.S. Lewis's odd, odd, but awesome conversion. You know, one of the arguments he'd had against God is just how wicked, cruel, and unjust this human life, this world looked to Lewis. And this was the argument presented to him when he converted from a nominal uh, Christian faith uh, to one of his tutors' uh, uh, intellectual atheism when he was uh, at late middle school, early high school. Listen to Lewis's. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, his imagination. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For my, The argument depended on saying the world was really unjust, not simply that it not happened to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. This is Lewis saying something like this, and he says it later in this way. If I was complaining that this, this, this world looked crooked, but you have to have a concept of a straight line in order for a crooked to be a departure from it. To put it another way, it's like this. When someone complains about the problem of evil, they have to assume there's a, another opposite of it called good. You also have to assume, if there's good and evil, that there's a moral standard or law that transcends human imagination and transcends the physical realm a standard that you can differentiate between good and evil, right and wrong. Uh, a good example here would be a standard like in a basketball game. It's not made up of the, the hoop, the metal hoop, uh, the court, the basketball, or the net, or the scoreboard. It is a standard that transcends but makes the game understandable. In other words, you have a, a, at least a concept of a perfect game, 15 shots for 15 shots. And then a mediocre game, ten, you know, seven, seven makes for fifteen attempts, and then a really poor game, zero oh, for fifteen. So that standard exists beyond the physical dimensions of uh, of the basketball game. So if you have a concept of evil, you have to have a concept of good. If you have a concept of good and evil, you have to have a standard to measure the difference between or tell the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, um, wicked and righteous. And then last, you have to have a moral lawgiver or a moral standard bearer in order to have that sort of thing. Uh, when it comes to ethics, uh, it, we, we need a, a moral standard bearer. Well, traditionally, God has served as that transcendent supernatural source 
that uh, is whose character is that moral standard, or more, and he's also the moral lawgiver. So, uh, God's perfection is his uh, is the moral standard. It transcends human imagination and our physical dimensions. And it's something that makes sense of good and evil as, as concepts, because otherwise good and evil just become our imaginations by way of group or individuals. This is called relativism. So the idea here is that you have to have enough tools in your toolbox to make sense of this whole subject of good and evil, ethics, right and wrong. Another way of phrasing it's this way. If you have an idea of what ethics are, it's basically how you're to value yourself and others. Uh, that's at its most basic level. How do you how do you recognize and, and honor and, and put moral obligation and duty incumbency um, on on things? How do you what's the hierarchy of value? Well, you need a supremely valuable, perfect value giver, um, and you need some something to differentiate between good and evil, right and wrong, and uh, and those sort of basics. So not to belabor this point too much, but I want you to be clear on this. The idea here is to try to show the non-believer, the skeptic, the naturalist, that if you are a committed naturalist and to be consistent, you're going to have to be committed to some version of an unlivable moral relativism that either individuals with a, a certain amount of power or groups are the ones that somehow generate value, ethical, moral value. And that is an, an extremely precarious situation to be in. Even uh, maybe arguably the best known lawyer, Harvard's Alan Dershowitz, his book Shouting Fire goes right through this sort of scenario. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, one of his former students, who's probably the best known sociologist, uh, New York University uh, from Harvard, uh, says the same thing, that this is a very difficult thing because we, are, we seem to know in our bones that morality or value is, there's something special about human beings beyond my mere assessing of it or saying it or imagining it. And so that's, that's the issue here. So in the, in the logic of it, somebody might say, well, Joe, I, I can understand how if you have good, you have to have an opposing concept called evil. You have to have an, uh, a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate or di dis make a distinction between good and evil. Just like you know, the, the rules of a basketball game aren't necessarily made up of the physical parts of the game. And but the, that last part, but you need a transcendent, some some being that transcends is supernatural that transcends uh, the physical order and human imagination. That God thing. Why does God need to be the standard bearer and the moral law giver? Well, there's a couple of reasons why, but one. You, one thing you can you can see is you, what you need is somebody again who is a value transmitter, somebody who is supremely valuable in and of himself that can transmit value, and give you an idea of the hierarchy of value uh, based on on different criterion. Uh, the next reason why is because notice whenever we're talking about ethics or morality, it's always about a human raised by a human. I mean, there's, there, there's comments about evolutionary and animal ethics, but at the end of the day, ethics and value uh, are raised by humans about humans. So you need, you see, there's something essential about personhood and the connection to worth. But all that, uh, just to say that this is, a, this is an is interesting issue. I wanted to bring it before you. And I also wanted to bring this skeptic before you as well. There's a, a gentleman at the London School of Economics named John Gray. Uh, John, Dr. John Gray uh, chides his European and American atheist brethren 
Uh, you see this especially in his book, Straw Dogs. Not that I'm suggesting the book, but he says this sort of thing all the time. He says, quit complaining. Quit guilting people. Quit making ethical evaluations. Quit making moral points, even against and especially against the theist. What he says there is, you're operating under a Judeo-Christian mindset, all the while denying the content of that Judeo-Christian mindset. So he said, in other words, these sort of evaluations, that acting as if morality transcends human imagination, is that's the Christian view. That's the biblical view. That's not the atheist view. And you see, again, the philosopher Nietzsche comes storming back where it comes down to if we are just matter in motion, it all that matters at that point, no pun intended, is how much power you have and how much you can exert that over other people so that you create value based on your access to resources and your uh, power over other people. So again, morality and ethics needs a transcendent supernatural source to justify the weight we all naturally give to it. And when skeptics deny the supernatural, the transcendent objective morality goes along with it. Uh, again, you find this even when I talk to skeptics, when I try to push them and say, okay, well, let's go with something important to you, the moral law. Um, or another way of saying it, that there's something in deep in our bones that tells us there's something special about human beings. That they shouldn't just be treated in a utilitarian fashion. There's more. They have they have an intrinsic worth rather than a functional worth. And when atheists say no, you know, he said, but don't you need God for that? And he said, well, if that goes, that becomes imaginary, and they don't normally argue back logically, rationally. They just go, oh, come on. Come on, you know you you know better than that. You know deep inside you that human there's something special about human beings, and we say no. But the fact they don't mount an argument, they just say they appeal to general revelation or common grace or something they know to be true at a more basic level than other things they hold to be true. But they can't justify it given their worldview. Tells you a lot of what you need to know about this problem of evil and suffering. This argument, in other words, if you're going to complain about the problem of evil, you're also going to bring good in with it. You're going to bring in ideas like the soul, will, value, authority. All of these things are going to come in with it that you just don't have in the toolbox of atheism and naturalism. So things to share with somebody. What about the emotional problem of evil? Remember, the emotional problem of evil is always the most thorny. We call it sometimes the pastoral problem of evil because we don't have specifics. Because God doesn't roll a blueprint out, we don't know exactly why he's allowed or has disallowed something either allowed something to happen to you or disallowed something to happen to you based on your own personal biography. We don't know those details, so that that makes the emotional problem of evil very, very difficult. So when someone goes through intense suffering and fiery trials, which the Bible predicts that we're going to go through, again, if you read in 1 Peter, um, you have this the head of the Christian church after Jesus' ascension saying we should not be surprised by particularly intense trials. We don't call them down on us, but fiery trials. But the emotional problem of evil is still there because we all go through suffering. It all takes us out of our, it, it, sometimes it's so devastating to us, it takes us away from thinking rationally, especially when it's particularly consequential or devastating. But the reason we don't have all the answers to the emotional problem of evil is we don't have all the details in someone's life, all the, 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 the full view of the biography and full view of the future. But things to share with people even that are going through the emotional problem of evil, that God hates evil more than we do. You have to remind people of that. He really doesn't. And even though we don't have specific answers of why he hasn't specifically eliminated this in your life, we have to. it does drive us to trust and dependence. It's also great to remember that God himself suffered on the cross. He has experienced this alongside of us. So again, a very, very unique part. We'll return to this in a moment of Christianity. 
And God will set things right in the future. Don't forget that this is not the last line. This is not if it's over, even if this thing ends in death for those that love the Lord and call upon his name. Um, this is the, actually an opening to a new future. I, I can remember a, a, a saint in the Lord saying something like this years ago, that God's going to heal me of this cancer either on this side of death or on the other side. But either way, there will be a restoration. Uh, and that's perfectly biblical. Um, we also want to be really, really clear here. And this is a real practical uh, approach here before we get into the finale here. I don't want any of you to be thinking that anybody in this class, that if you become a Christian, and I think most of you are mature and you wouldn't believe this, but that that you can expect the following things to happen. That if you become a Christian, you will feel blissfully happy all the time. Feeling blissfully happy is the reason it feels so good is because most of the time it's rare. And we do have a connection between rarity and value. Um, but if you become a Christian, you shouldn't expect that you'll be able to sense God's secret plan for your life through your feelings. Uh, sometimes we do that rarely, but that requires a lot of other a lot of other things to check, especially if it's a trajectory altering decision. You shouldn't believe that if you become a Christian, all of a sudden God's secret plan for your life will automatically work because He owes that to you, even though it's crazy, even though it might just really rail against common common grace, common sense. Uh, sometimes God calls us to do really, really it, it, what what looks like from an earthly standpoint crazy things, but He usually gives us enough wisdom and enough support so that we can see something He's doing in there, so we don't just justify all of our crazy whims or go off on things. When you know, again, Paul says, "Live quiet lives in submission and all uh, peace and patience." So you know that that would not require you saying God's telling me to do massively radical things all the time. Um, God will don't believe that God will give you a perfect spouse and lots of money without you having to study anything hard or do any hard work. I meet a ton of young Christians in their 20s and early 30s that believe this. That if you become a Christian, um, you get permission to do things that make you happy, even if they're expressly forbidden in the Bible. That God is so concerned about your happiness rather than his kingdom and your righteousness that he's going to really just kind of elbow the Holy Spirit and say, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. I don't want you to believe that if you become a Christian, you don't have to do anything that makes you feel bad ever i.e. like talk to non-Christians about Christian truth claims because God is only primarily interested in your happiness. Now, we, again, we've been trying to hit this. God has a concern about our happiness, and it does. there's a lot of things about Christianity that result in what we call a deep satisfaction or a deep happiness that incorporates suffering and evil and hardship. But these are not things that are owed to us the minute we say yes and have a tearful time at the altar. Um I don't know where people get the idea, especially in, in first world circles, Europe and its colonies, in church, that if you convert to Christianity, God all of a sudden becomes your butler. It's just not true. So again, another way to put this is this way. If, if suffering disproves your Christianity, you don't know biblical Christianity. You've missed Christianity entirely. The Bible's filled with suffering, the suffering of those who God loves. The central event of the Bible is one of suffering. Love always involves suffering in a fallen world. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That means suffering, no two ways about it. Uh, God's job is not to prevent us from all suffering. In fact, let's just put it this way. Even if you're really wise and smart, make really great practical decisions, you can expect in some way to get creamed anyway. No one gets out of here without suffering. It's part of it. And in fact, if you let it do the work it's supposed to do in your life, it can make, it can give you a depth that other things just can't give you. 
If you get a chance, take 15 minutes, read the entire book of First Peter in the New Testament if you're having thoughts about this in the opposite direction. Every single major character that did anything significant for the kingdom of God in the Bible had suffering, times of risk, suffering, doubt, and hardship. At least most of the ones we know, doubt and hardship. So that's not a defeater for Christianity. That's an aspect of Christianity. So as we conclude here, I wanted to bring you, uh, it's a pretty strong claim to say that of all the major world uh, philosophies uh, or religions in the world, that Christianity does more not to solve the problem of evil, but to resolve it and integrate it into its, into its, uh, its map of existence into its worldview, into it, make it talk to its other ideas. And the reason this is important is there are a number of comparative religion scholars across the board of differing allegiances to Christianity, some not, some allied with Christianity, that would say the, the primary function of any worldview, life philosophy, or religion is what it does with the thing that touches all of us, suffering and evil. To that end, I wanted to bring you this book as we conclude by a, a gentleman by the name of Ron Rickers. Ron Rickers, uh, Oxford University Press, arguably the, the most prestigious academic press and one of the most difficult to get a, a, a print monograph for them to underwrite. Uh, there's a book out there by Professor Ron Rickers called The Reformation of Suffering. And in this book, it talks about the unique approach to suffering as Christianity began to spread during persecution. If nothing else, what an, an, an astounding anomaly, sociological anomaly, that Christianity through, through uh, intermittent suffering, persecution, or at least minimally social difficulty, was able to grow in its first 300 years leading up to the relief of this kind of uh, persecution or outlawing it by way of Constantine uh, in, the, uh, in the early 4th century. So what you have here is a really unique approach to suffering as Christianity spread. And Ricker says there's no real rival to this. Um, so if you are of a person that, that, that agrees with a lot of comparative religion scholars across the board that your religion's engagement with suffering and evil is a primary evaluative to its usefulness, its maybe not its truthfulness, but its impact in your life and its function as a, uh, as a, as a, as a real aid uh, to human beings, then Ritger's book might might speak to you. And though I, I, it's a very expensive monograph and I don't have time to go through it all, I would just say this. There are three revolutions from Jesus Christ and his followers on the handling of suffering and evil that was extremely appealing uh, to the ancient world. Uh, one of those uh, approaches um, was the fact that Christianity offered a middle way. Um, in the ancient world, you either just leaned into your grief and would grieve sometimes for weeks at a time over the loss of someone else, over a major setback, suffering, a loss of loss of crops uh, in an agrarian subsistence, largely subsistence culture. The other end of it was one that, uh, seeing its origination in the Greek worldview and, and seeing it flourish in the Roman worldview, and it's called Stoicism. And that's trained indifference or ambivalence, or as some of the Buddhists say, a detachment towards suffering, hardship, and evil in the world. The Christian alternative, and this is one of the first big differences between Christianity and other religions or worldviews or life philosophies, the Christian alternative was you grieve and you grieve in a direction toward God and toward true hope. So you grieve 
toward God and with a true hope. You see this in all over the the of the Psalms, the Psalter, the songbook and prayer book of the Bible, the center of the Bible. 150 Psalms, uh, disappointment, lament, crying, and grief are uh, are included in a, in 50 of the 150. Um, and this Christian alternative is right there, and it's right there in the life of Christ as well. Uh, it's right there in his on the lips of his followers. Um, you can see, again, you can see it in the Psalms. I'm thinking of planting your tears. How do you plant your tears in this rich, robust analogy? And you expect, what, sheaves of righteousness to come up out of these? So you grieve and grieve honestly, but you grieve in a direction. So we don't grieve like pagans do, like Paul says in Thessalonians. It's different for Christians. The second big difference uh, that Christianity made with regard to suffering uh, in its nascent, growing form uh, as it uh, as, as Christianity left the province of Judea and uh, Jerusalem and, and moved out uh, to the ends of the earth was the awe-inspiring conviction of a God who suffers, a suffering Savior, a massively unique scenario. Now, again, there's some people online that say, well, there are some suffering deities out there. You know, uh, you think of uh, Odin in the, in the Great Tree in Norse mythology or some, uh, you know, some aspects of the Dionysus, which would in the Roman pantheon become the Bacchus tale. Uh, nothing like Nothing like the details, the devils in the details, uh, the details of, of God incarnate, Emmanuel coming and lowering himself into a human form, already already incredible enough, and then uh, reducing himself to suffering as our redemptor, as our propitiation. Um, God knows what it's like to suffer. And some other correlatives to this sort of thing, that you keep your love and your personality after death. Uh, these are some of the, the writers connected to this suffering Savior and what he said, that your body and soul will eventually reunite, again, uh, from Jesus or his earliest followers, and that unjust suffering happens to all on this earth, to everybody. No one escapes it. So um, these, again, some practical for mature Christians that we call that we can call these Ritger's Three Revolutions uh, about suffering, grief, and evil uh, in the ancient world. And last is that there's a hope, and it's a real hope, that our suffering's never pointless. So this gets right back to that evidential problem of evil. Are there gratuitous, is there gratuitous suffering that has no counterbalancing good? It's hard to know how any human being could claim to know that uh, as a fact or in, with any degree of certainty. But our hope in suffering is never pointless. There's always the, the purview of the eternal, of heaven, that should be conditioning our view, conditioning our position. Um, there's always the idea that Jesus did defeat humankind's most mortal enemy, and that would be mortality itself, death. Um, that, that Jesus, that's why Paul measures God's power through Christ in resurrection units, not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, kilotons of explosive power, but against humankind's number one enemy, which is death and despair and, and, and just further separation from the God who gave us all these great gifts. So uh, again, we've tried to sustain some things in this talk. Again, it's very woefully inadequate uh, talk for you. But just a quick uh, recap. We tried to go through the different versions of the problem of evil and suffering to show how it didn't necessarily even logically dislodge the idea or even d destroy the idea of a higher power. Though it, it, it might, if some forms work, make us think twice about God's character biblically. Um, but we showed how these versions of the problem of evil fail in multiple ways. The logical version, God and evil cannot coexist in any sort of sense. A good God and evil and suffering. Um, that's been largely abandoned. The evidential is a little more tricky. 
it's probable that a God that allows this much evil and this intense, the, the, the intensity of evil in the world probably doesn't exist. We were able to show that, again, to the, to the, to the satisfaction of even non-believers that this is not a, a great argument, much less a devastating one against the problem of evil and suffering. And we talked about the pastoral that will always seem to be with us given the fact we're not omniscient on this side of eternity and don't we're not given blueprint type of details, either background of somebody and their decisions they made or their future. So we talked about how those different versions don't exactly constitute, they constitute a thorny problem that causes doubt for people, but it certainly doesn't constitute a defeater for Christianity. Uh, we also went on to say that if, if a religion's number one function for a human being is how it deals with and resolves, not solves, the problem of evil, suffering, hardship, and risk, and pain, um, that Christianity has no rival, that there's nothing like uh, Christianity, which at the heart of the worldview has suffering, that, has, that takes that, those ashes and turns them to beauty, the beauty of redemption, the beauty of reconnect, and the beauty of uh, reunification. So we wanted to uh, end there and just say we hope you have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we go over our next, uh, our next point of doubt so that we can keep the conversation going and not leave people to either look online or just look to their other unformed uh, uh, people in their lives to get answers to these sort of things. Thank you, guys. Mm-hmm.